Hello, friends. It is time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. And we're taking your questions about the Bible, about God, about Christ, about the spiritual life, about you walking with Jesus in this world. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm filling in today for Michael Rydelnik, and I'm the founding pastor of Compass Bible Church in Aliso, Viejo, California. And the Bible teacher's voice you hear on Focal Point Radio on this station. I hope it's on your station. It should be. And I've authored a few books, most recently one on Envy that Moody Publishing has just published. And if you want to think through that topic, I invite you to look that up. You can go to our Moody Publishing page and look at that or anywhere you buy books. We've got uh, open lines here, and that's the name of the program. And we have a couple, I believe, if you just give us a call with your question. 877-548-3675. And I know you can get frustrated sometimes just because this show is so popular. If you get a busy signal, call back in a few minutes, and we will hopefully get you in queue to get on the program. The number, 877-548-3675. And you can send us your question if you want through open line radio. And you don't hear any busy signals if you do that. And you can ask Mike a question. It's called the Ask Michael a Question form that you fill out, and you'll get in our mailbag segment on the program. So keep your Bibles open, get your minds engaged. We're going to go back to Shirlene, who was asking about meat and the Bible. And I started on some long discussion about why this is the case. So let me try and pick that up. Shirlene, are you still with me? Yes. Okay. Here, here's what I wanted to say. And, and maybe this had nothing to do with what, uh, this was your son that was asking about this, right? Uh, grandson. Grandson. Maybe it had nothing to do with, with your thinking. But if the question is like, why did this happen? I, I do think, and this is all speculation, but I think it's biblically informed speculation. When you see the precipitous drop in, in the longevity of people's lives, you see even uh, in the uh, geologic record, you see a lot of larger animals that are uh, vegetarian, let's put it that way. They're, they're plant-eating animals, and they go extinct, and it seems to be all at the same time, which is, I think, in the flood of Noah. Uh, and, and they have the earth not able to sustain certain kinds of animals that are, are not meat-eaters, and you have uh, people needing a kind of, uh, of, of, of nutrition that's a little more hearty than what we had prior to a world that was very different, probably with a firmament or a, uh, the waters above as it's put in scripture, protecting us from the radiation from the sun in a way that we have it now. Life just got a whole lot more harsh, and it's almost like we needed that whole uh, you know, protein shake, so to speak. We needed a different kind of diet uh, to keep these very fragile human beings alive. And I'm not saying you can't be healthy as a vegetarian. Of course, a lot of people writing books about all that. But my point is, as a general rule, of people in the ancient world having to now have a different kind of diet that sustains a life that is much more uh, in, in an environment that's much more hostile to human beings. I think that's one of the reasons, at least in my speculation, that we have this change and, okay, now you can eat these animals. And it's going to be an important part of your diet. And, of course, don't eat the flesh with the blood in it. That becomes a very important key as it relates to the ceremonial law that was coming up and something that God was trying to make clear. Is That's a whole different question. But the idea idea of why we had this shift, I think we had it because of the environment in which human beings lived, and I think we see the evidence of that clearly just by the dates that are given to us of the number of years that people were living both pre-flood and post-flood world, and, and so that's why the rules changed, I believe. Uh, but was there eating of meat before that? Perhaps there was. And, and I can't say there wasn't because most every rule God has ever made, people have broken in some way or another. 
But we do know that the shedding of blood in the garden to clothe Adam and Eve had such profound symbolic representation of what would happen in Christ, that an innocent life would be killed to cover the sins, the word in, in, in Hebrew, kafar, to, to atone for the sins of people, uh, became a, just a, a depiction of what Christ would be, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So, Charlene, does that help at all in your discussion with your grandson? It helps greatly. It was, a, I thought, kind of a simple question, but uh, you expanded it a lot and gave gave a lot of uh, things to think about. Terrific. Well, maybe that's what the show is all about, in part, making us dig deeper into our Bibles and think more, uh, just more broadly about what the Scripture says and the questions that are raised by it. So I appreciate your call, Shirlene. The number for the program, 877-548-3675. And I think we've got some more calls lined up. I don't want to complain. I don't have my computer system working the way it should, and we're just having a little technical difficulty, but let's go to the phones. I don't have a name or a place. Jason, I've just been told. So Jason, you're on the air with Mike Fabara sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik in Ohio, I've just been told. How can I help? Good morning and uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you Merry for taking Christmas my call. to you. Yes, of course. Um, I have heard some previous teaching on um, the angel of the Lord. And the, the person had said that after Jesus resurrected, there was no reason for him to uh, reveal, reveal himself as the angel of the Lord. And in Acts 8, 26, um, it says that the angel of the Lord spoke or told Philip to go um, to Jerusalem. And then in verse 29 below it, it talks that the Holy Spirit said to Philip, can you give a little more clarification? Is this Jesus as in the Old Testament, um, and why would, again, Jesus can do whatever he wants, but why would Jesus um, reveal himself to Philip as a, as a disciple, as an angel of the Lord? Right, if in fact that's what happened, which we're, we're not sure. And here's the problem with the word angel. It's not translated. It's transliterated. When you say the word angel in English, you're really just mouthing the Greek word, angelos. That's just how we slid that word over and didn't translate it. If we were to translate it, Right? You'd, you'd have to translate it as a messenger, someone who brings a message. And, and, of course, we think of a whole class of beings, and rightly so, who are God's messengers, who are spiritual beings that come and bring messages sometimes, or as it says in Hebrews 1, they minister to the saints in some ways that we don't even understand, but they're there engaged in human affairs as uh, God's representatives and, and reporting or whatever they do. They minister and they bring messages on key situations in biblical history. So when you read the word angel, angelos, in the Greek New Testament, sometimes, and it's true in the Old Testament as well, you have this word representing people. You have it representing someone who is just a bringing a message to someone else. So it's not un unusual for the word to be used of human beings. Then you say, well, can it be used of the second person of the Godhead, either the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament or maybe here the, the glorified Christ in, in Acts 6? And all I'm saying is you could, but it doesn't mean that he's an angelic class being. And a lot of people, Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses and others will say, well, that he is an angel. Jesus is an angel, an, an angelic being, and he gets created. He's a special angelic being. And I'm just saying that that's a confusion of category. That's a, that's a category error, right? We know that Jesus is unique. He is not an angelic being. He's not Michael the Archangel. Michael the Archangel is part of a class of spirit beings like Gabriel, and he's, he's not in the class of, of Christ. So Christ can be called a messenger. 
He can be called a preacher. He can be called a rabbi. He can be called a lot of things, uh, but there is a special class that is given to the angelic beings that are spirit beings, never created to be embodied in, in material flesh, uh, and they've existed before the, the world was created, and I quoted that from Job 38 earlier in the program, and all of that just reminds us that the flexibility, the elasticity of that word could definitely apply to the second person of the Godhead, either pre-incarnate or post-incarnate. But sometimes we just need to be careful in those. We have to have a reason to believe that this is referring to Christ. Like, if you speak about the Spirit of God, could he be described as, as an angel? Well, only in the sense that he is bringing a message from time to time. The, the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, can fulfill that role of bringing a message, and then the, the title would apply. You're, you're an angelos. You're a, a message bearer. And so we, don't, we just need to be careful that we don't have such a rigid thinking about, well, if, if, if the word angels used, we're talking about the, the Michael, Gabriel kinds of of angelic beings. Does that help at all, Jason? It does. It does. And like I said, I, I understand the Lord has his way of how he, how he moves and does. So who am I? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. But just as long as we know that we're not calling Jesus an angel, we're not calling the Holy Spirit an angel. There is a class of angels. No. And, speak, and I think back to my Moody Bible Institute days when I was a student. I took a fantastic class. He's now passed on to be with the Lord. But uh, C. Fred Dickus wrote a book called Angels, Elect and Evil. And I took his class when I was there a whole semester just studying angelic beings, which of course includes demonic beings and Satan himself. And that little book, I still have it. I still pull it off my shelf. It's all marked up from when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. But I'll tell you, if you get a hold of that book, it's out there. It's out there digitally. It's out there in print still. It's just called Angels, Elect and Evil. It's a Moody publication, I believe. And it's just so helpful to look at the detail in that book. It's written almost in an outline format. And I think you would just, uh, you would, you would just, you benefit greatly from that. And even its appendix, which I believe is just on the topic of the angel of the Lord, and as it's used throughout scripture, would be so enlightening for you, uh, Jason. And I would certainly recommend that book to you. Angels, Elect and Evil, Fred Dickinson. It's a great book. I still use it today after, you know, three decades, plus three decades of being a student there in the classroom and being able to have the privilege of sitting under Dr. Dickinson there at, uh, at Moody. All right, Jason, thank you so much for the call. We appreciate you calling in today. The show is Open Line. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm sitting in for Dr. Michael Redelnik. Open line with uh, Michael Redelnik is such an important program to answer your questions. Our number is 877-548-3675, and we're going to be back with more of the program right after these quick messages. People often wonder, what's Hanukkah all about? So with Hanukkah coming up in December, Chosen People Ministries wants to help open-line listeners by offering a free booklet called The Gospel According to Hanukkah. Chosen People Ministries reaches Jewish people around the world with the good news of Jesus the Messiah. The Gospel According to Hanukkah explains the ancient origins of this holiday, the way it's celebrated today, and how it relates to our own faith in Jesus, the light of the world. For a free copy of The Gospel According to Hanukkah, just go to openlineradio.org. Scroll down, and you'll see a link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that. 
and you'll be able to sign up for your very own copy of The Gospel According to Hanukkah. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, but I'm not he. <laughs> I'm Dr. Mike Fabar, is sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Our number is 877-548-3675. And you know, I just love our, our Moody Radio staff, because as soon as we went to break, I was told that Fred Dickinson has not passed away. And, you know, I just think so many of our former Moody professors might be sitting by the radio on a Saturday morning and... Uh, Dr. Dickinson, if you're listening, I apologize <laughs> for saying that you have passed away. That, that The reports of your passing are greatly exaggerated, and uh, he's still going, and I appreciate it. And I can say this, and I'll just hope that maybe you are listening. You have made a big difference in my life, the study of not just angelic beings, but so many others. And I had crossed my wires in my mind about another beloved professor, uh, William Baker, uh, who passed away. I did hear about that. He was one of my theology professors at Moody, such a great, great man, and changed my thinking on so many things by having me do the hard work. But we love those Moody professors. They're fantastic, and uh, they've changed lives. So it seems like a, a lifetime ago that I was sitting in those classes with Dr. Baker and Dr. Dickinson, but... Uh, uh, Dr. Dickinson, great respect to you. I hope you're still doing well, and I'm so glad to be corrected that you have not passed on. That's good news. All right, well, let's get back to the phone and make sure I don't say anybody else has gone on to glory that hasn't. Uh, we'll go to William in North Carolina. You're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Hey, hey how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Uh, in, in the next year, I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to start uh you know, through the Bible, I've, I've never really read through the Bible. I've read, you know, I've been in church you know, most of my life. I've never read through the Bible. Like, I, you know, it's really pitiful. Uh, but I, I just want to get some direction. Uh, is it best to start in the New Testament and just go through the, through the whole Bible? Or uh, would you recommend, is there any, like, online online courses that I could take that would that would help me as I, as I start reading or... What do you recommend? Yeah. Like, what do you, yeah. would you start in the New Testament and the Old Testament? Or, uh... Well, here's what I would recommend. I would recommend both. And by that, I mean a, a, a reading schedule that takes you both through the Old and New Testament at the same time. Like at our church, every single year, uh, we basically just follow uh, the Bible reading schedule that's put out by ESV.org, which is the English Standard Version of the Bible by Crossway Publishers, and and everyone in our church, uh, at least we encourage everyone in our church to read it, and we talk about it, we discuss it, you know, hopefully at church someone shows up at a Thursday night Bible study, everyone's read the same passage in the morning, may not be the focus of our study that particular night, but everyone's got it on their minds. And what we do is, we, generally speaking, we read two chapters from the Old Testament and one chapter from the New Testament, we get through the whole Bible in one year. Now, there's a couple of books that may be helpful, and I'll just push this. Moody Publishing's done a great job with two little books that would be good to have in your hand as you read through the Old and New Testament, and that is a little book called The, the Survey of the Old Testament by, uh, I think, by Dr. Ben Ware, another one of my old professors there at Moody, has written, and then The New Testament, Survey of the New Testament. So they're just two little books. They're small, but if you just read the section 
on that book and that part of the book before you dive into your reading every day. It definitely will orient you. Because the Bible, of course, though most of it is is progressing in the chronological history, certainly in the Old Testament in particular, and even the New Testament, we're going to read some things in, in different books that overlap with other books and sometimes come before other books. And for instance, the book of Nehemiah is, is really the last book of the history of the Old Testament, yet we have a lot of books in the Old Testament that come after it, so we need to know where all those books are placed. If you're reading Hosea, for instance, a very early prophet, and we need to know, well, that goes back even long before uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so books like that, a survey of the Old Testament, a survey of the New Testament, these are great little books that will help us stay oriented as we read the Bible. But I'd recommend that, and I'd also recommend be, beyond just reading the Bible, which is good, and it's so critically important that we get that 30,000 foot view of all that's going on in the Bible. I would take a book of the Bible, in particular a New Testament letter, like the book of James or maybe Paul's letter to the to the Colossians, and just soak in one or two verses a day. So read the Bible, and I'd start January 1 with Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1. There's plenty of reading schedules out there, but I would try to have one that gets me through the whole Bible in one year. And again, you can go to esv.org if you want to use the one that I use. They have plenty of options on that site, but I just do the Bible in a year program, and our whole church, I mean, thousands of people at our church do that Bible reading every single year. And I would also have a time after I read the survey section on Genesis and the survey section on Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, I would then go to a passage in the New Testament, and I would just dig in deep, roll up your sleeves, try and get one or two verses in your mind. I'd memorize it. I'd focus on it for the whole day. I'd think about what does this mean in its original context? What are the principles in this text? And how can I start to live this passage out in my workplace and in my family? So if you make that your diet, along with a good diet of prayer and a prayer list, you're going to be in good shape. William. You'll be in good shape in having a biblical mindset and an increasing knowledge of God's Word in the new year, and I definitely encourage you to do that. Does that help? Okay. Oh, yeah. The survey of the Old Testament, did you say it's published by Moody? The, 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 the two books, the survey of the Old Testament and New Testament? Yes, and I'm picking them up right now, and it is a Moody publication, and it's called The Survey of the Old Testament by Paul Benware. And then the New Testament, I it's the same author, Survey of the New Testament by Paul Benware. These are just great little handbooks that just show you every yeah. section of the Bible that you're going to be reading, and it may be just a page that you read that just reminds you what's going on in the first part of Genesis, and how does it fit with the rest of the Old Testament. So those two books, super helpful, and I do think that that will really kind of give you a lay of the land and a roadmap to make sure you know what you're reading every single day. So yeah, survey of the Old Testament, survey of the New Testament, Moody Publication. You go to moodypublishers.org, and uh, maybe it's .com, and you can have all of that um, available to you or anywhere you buy books. But I find those two, I keep, the reason I have them on my shelf and I just grab them is I buy a bunch of those and just give them to people for their birthday. I just think it's a good thing for them to have these little handbooks in their hand, and they're reliable, and they're good, they're helpful, and they will help you uh, kind of understand what you're reading every single day. So, William, I appreciate that call, and it's a question I think that has benefited a lot of our listeners. Maybe some didn't even think about starting a new reading program in the new year, and you've got us talking about it, and that is very, very helpful. Well, let's go to Mark in Ohio. You're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Good morning, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, question is about Herod, or otherwise Herod the Great. 
Uh, did he give himself the name the Great, or did somebody else give that to him after he died? Well, that is a great question. Herod the Great, right, this king of, of Palestine, he's the one who killed the children in Bethlehem. Uh, he definitely was an egomaniacal person, and uh, I can't off the top of my head tell you whether or not that title became known posthumously, that it was something given to him, or whether he... Um, assign that to himself. But I'll tell you what, I know enough from Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 2, and I know enough from uh, extra biblical history that he certainly thought he was great in every way. He was uh, someone who would kill his own family members uh, just to maintain his power. He thought he was the unrivaled sovereign, and he had a lot of insecurities, and in those insecurities, they played themselves out in just exalting himself. So I know there's someone listening, and I'm sure Dr. Michael Radelnik, uh, next time he's in, can probably off the top of his head give you that, but it is a title that definitely fits him, and I would say he would love it in his lifetime if he didn't have it in his lifetime, but I do think if I had to choose and guess at this with an informed guess, I'm going to think he was using that himself in his lifetime. I could be wrong, don't know off the top of my head, but you can't find anyone that's really more crazed in his self-promotion than Herod, known as later Herod the Great. Now, we have a lot of Herods in the Bible, just so you don't forget that. We have uh, Archelaus that takes his place. Herod Antipas uh, becomes the key figure throughout the rest of the New Testament Gospels, and uh, that's important that we know he is not the same that killed uh, the babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. And then in the book of Acts, we have Herod Agrippa. Uh, actually, we have two Herod Agrippas, Herod Agrippa the first in the first part of Acts and Herod Agrippa the second that Paul gives his defense to. So we have four Herods that are mentioned in the Bible, all related to Herod the Great as either the son, grandson, or great-grandson. And those sometimes get confused because the shorthand in some of these passages just say Herod. Thankfully, in the book of Acts, sometimes we just see the word Agrippa, and that reminds us we're not talking about Herod the Great. But Herod the Great, it started all with him. So great was he in his own mind that no one could take his place, uh, at least in any uh, significant way, and, and things did kind of fall. It's like Alexander the Great, right? There's another one that has the title, Alexander the Great, and, and, and he was a unique figure, and he was very self-promoting, and a lot of what happened after his demise was that things kind of crumbled and split into various parts. But yes, Herod the Great, Alexander the Great, a lot of people that have call, been called the great probably were calling themselves the great during their lifetime. But I can't tell you definitively, uh, Mark, and I hope that helps. Very much so. Thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate that. Let's go to Becky in Ohio. You're in the air with Mike Fabar is listening to Open Line. How can I help? Hi. Thanks for filling in. I appreciate that. Um, so I've been reading through the accounts of the um, Jesus birth and Luke and Matthew just through Advent. And I've always been kind of curious about the timetable um, as far as like, so in Luke, you get um, Jesus' birth and then the uh, eight days later, he's presented at the temple and Simeon and Anasim, and then it says that they returned to Nazareth. But in Manchet, um how he's, you know, the, the Magi coming and then Herod's informed and then he sends, you know, the the killing squad, right? And, and an angel warns Joseph to go uh, to to flee to Egypt. So just kind of curious, like, you know, the Bible doesn't actually say specifically, but what maybe were those events? I mean, obviously he was eight days old in the temple, but when did they go to Egypt? 
Yeah, well, they did go to Egypt after they found out that, that Herod the Great had died and his son, as we just mentioned about the Herod question, uh, took his place. Ooh. And so Joseph ran to protect himself because his father had tried to kill his son, and that happened as an act of self-preservation. Now, of course, we know he ends up in Nazareth, and Luke takes up the, the, the story of him getting, actually, to Nazareth. So the reality of all the things that were fulfilled in Luke, and Luke is definitely careful to show that he fulfilled all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, including the presentation, the circumcision, all the sacrifices that were given to dedicate the firstborn child. So all of that is a very important emphasis for Luke, not so much the chronology of did he take a detour down to Egypt. And so that, that's not a part of the narrative. So you have to put these things together as we do in a harmony of the Gospels, and I, I don't know if you have one, but it's so important that you get one because it helps us as we study the the Gospels, just to figure out the timeline. Now, there's a few things that take place in those harmonies where we're not, we don't know for sure, but I might recommend, I don't mean to always recommend so many books, but if you just get a synopsis of the four Gospels or a harmony of the Gospels, and speaking of Moody Publishing, I know we publish some at Moody Publishing that will help you on this. Synopsis of the Gospels or a harmonies of the Gospels, it will take these scenes and show you that a lot of the narratives are compressed and don't give us all the detail in one Gospel but we've got to fill it in with another. So I hope that helps Becky. I would spend some time in those narratives in a harmonies to help put them in order. So we appreciate it. Hey, we got a lot going on on the mailbag that's coming up. We've got open line taking place right now. Mike Fabares is sitting in for Dr. Michael Redelnik on Moody Radio. So stay tuned for the mailbag. We'll be back in just a few minutes with that with Trish McMillan. Each week on Open Line, with me, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called A Bible Study Moment, where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a kitchen table partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. We're so glad that FEBC partners with Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, bringing the FEBC mailbag every week. Learn how Far East Broadcasting Company is taking Christ to the world at febc.org. On their weekly podcast, Until All I've Heard with Ed Cannon, you'll hear stories of lives changed by Messiah all across the globe. Again, you can hear the podcast when you visit febc.org. That's febc.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares filling in for Michael Rydelnik today, and this is the, the famed mailbag segment. That's when we take your questions from the mailbag, which is an electronic bag. That's why Trish can lift it, and it has so many letters in it. Right. <laughs> you, you can just do it. I'm not saying you're weak, but <laughs> I'm saying you're strong because you can pick up all those electronic envelopes and open them up. And you can read them to me. So, yes, yes. What do we have, Trish, in the mailbag today? <laughs> well, our first one actually came specifically for you. Oh, good. Um, yes. James in Illinois listens to WMBI and said, why as evangelicals do we sometimes try to be worldly in order to gain followers to Christ? Um, he says, the practice of biblical separation seems to have gotten lost all over the years. Wouldn't it be better to remain walking with the Holy Spirit and maintaining an obedient and holy walk with God? So that um, 
those uh, falling away would be lessened. Okay. Now, this is a complicated question, which, of course, we are to be separated in every moral and ethical way that we possibly can from the world, because the world lives for themselves, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. They have a whole different constitution and what they live for than we do. We live for the glory of God under the lordship of Christ. That makes us different. Now, the passage that's often quoted is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which, of course, is describing the distinctions. But the distinctions are being made in the passage that regard to righteousness uh, versus lawlessness. So, absolutely, I don't want to live like the world. I don't want to laugh at all the things the world laughs like. I don't want to, um, I don't want to be entertained by all the things the world's entertained by. Uh, but, you know, we live in the world, and as Paul addressed earlier in, in the first letter to the Corinthians, he said in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, you know, I, you, you're going to have associations and connections with the, 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 the sinful, worldly world that we live in. Or you'd have to leave the world. I'm not. You can't possibly live in this world, right? So if I said, okay, uh, James, do you wear tennis shoes? Uh, yeah, well, a lot of sinners wear tennis shoes. Uh, do you go to Taco Bell? Well, a lot of sinners go to Taco Bell. We, we're not talking about where you eat or even what you wear. We're talking about what your ethical, moral standards are, what your commitments and loyalties are. So yes, we've lost the separation, and I do think you're right, and I 100% believe that there are people that are just trying to be like the world by having the same kinds of values the world has so that people will say, well, you're kind of cool. You're like me. And you can just look at the, the, the wars about sexual ethics today, right? Your church is saying, well, it's okay. We love everybody. It's not a big deal. We're not going to get all tied up about these things that God said because we want you to like us. Well, they're not going to like us when we start saying what the Bible has to say regarding ethics, righteousness, morality, the law of God, what God would have us do. But when it comes to right, how do people dress in the church? That's where the doctrine of separation has gotten cloudy. And people say, well, we got to dress different. Right, we, we gotta we gotta we gotta stand differently. We gotta do things differently in every way. Well, we can't. Right, and that, that's not the point. Now, the point is we're gonna have to share in a lot of the things that the world shares in, in terms of where we shop or where we eat or what we eat or whatever. Uh, and and so we can't be completely separate from the culture. But we can say we're never gonna compromise the lordship of Christ in our lives. How how do we? Um, I think the struggle often can be, you'll see another, it comes down to the log and the speck, I think, sometimes, too. Um, you'll see another believer do something, commit an action, or say some words, and you think, ooh, I wouldn't do that, <laughs> you know? But right, you, but right. it's really hard to see what are the things that I, we're not responsible for that person, though. And right. so, and, and I think it's really hard to see what I'm doing um, things or tones I may be used. So maybe it's not the actual words I'm speaking to my children, but it's the tone that I use toward my children in in how I'm reprimanding them for something or scolding them for something that they did. And, and that um, those aren't things that I'm as aware of, as, I, as aware of I, I, as I am of what other people are doing. Does that make sense? Right. I I think so, because we justify, we like to justify and rationalize what we do. And we think, well, of course we're right, you know, because I decided this is right. And so we we don't think sometimes with the same scrutiny about all the things we've decided are okay for us to do. Uh, But it, it usually isn't, 
necessarily about tone that we use with our kids. It's where we take our kids or what we let our yeah. kids watch or, yeah. you know, whatever. And, and then they say, well, wait a minute. You can't take them to that amusement park because that amusement park, they, they promote uh, LGBTQ. And then you think, okay, well, I can't even buy a ballpoint pen probably from a company that doesn't promote something that is unrighteous. So, and that's where I think the First Corinthians fifth, uh, First Corinthians 5 passage is so important that we, we cannot avoid association with swindlers and idolaters and greedy and immoral people because we'd have to live in a different planet. And we don't live in a different planet until the Lord Jesus comes back and establishes a world in which righteousness dwells. So we have to live in the world, but we cannot reflect all of its morality, its ethic, it, the way it lives. And I think that's where we need to, to, to just separate what we look like, how, how our hair is, or you know, our clothing or whatever. Th that's where a lot of the old separatists have gone gone astray, right? They think that somehow dressing like we we lived in the 1920s is more godly, and I'm saying, well, why not go to the the 10th century or let's go back to the third century? I mean, we can play that game until it doesn't it make any sense, right? What what matters is are we living a life that reflects the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and all of that can be summarized as the Bible says with love, and love of course has a lot of dimensions to it, but. We need to be separate in that regard. I, I'm not just about the bottom line at work. I'm not just about you know fitting in and telling the same jokes or using the same language. There's a distinction, and that's the separation I think James is probably getting at, and I hope he's getting at that and focused on that because there's a lot of packaging in how I look as a Southern California person mm -hmm. that reflects my culture. It's just mm -hmm. how it is. I mean, in every culture. I've been on the mission field. Everybody looks like product of their culture. But do they love the Lord Jesus and want to serve him and obey him? That's the real question. All right. Thank you. Thanks for that question, James. Tyler in Illinois listens to WMBI. Wants to know, how should I handle the, the busyness of my life and tiredness? Are there any scriptures about what Jesus would say about it? Yeah, well, uh, get used to it. <laughs> I mean, the first, that'd be the first thing I would say. I mean, Jesus, think about it. He When he went across the Sea of Galilee on the ship with his disciples to get a little break, right? Get away, we're going to take a break. I mean, certainly we know embedded within creation order is that we take a break. God knew that seven days is a good period of time where you're going to need your batteries recharged. Just like if you didn't sleep for two days and you said, I'm really tired, it said, well, you didn't sleep. You know, if you keep working and you never take a day off, I would say, well, yeah, you're, this is going to catch up with you. So God is built in even to this unique seven-day period, knowing that the batteries of human beings need to be recharged by taking a break from all the normal work. And, and yet Jesus, even when he was trying to take a break, he found people with needs on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and he got to work teaching them. He didn't even have time to eat, right? He didn't have time to eat. That's why Mary, of Mark, and the brothers of Jesus come and say he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He's always doing this ministry stuff. Or, or later in John 4, when he's traveling through Samaria, and they bring lunch back, and he's busy sharing the gospel with the woman at the well, and they're like, Rabbi, eat. And he's like, I got food to eat you know nothing about. So here's the deal. Our, our, our soul should thrive on the service of the Lord, which for most casual people out there, they're going to say, you're too busy, going to church too many times. You're hanging out and, and doing ministry too much. You, you read the Bible too much. You just need to take more breaks. Well, we do need to take breaks, and you do need to take a break every day. It's called sleep, and you need to take a break every week, right? It's called a day off, and, and, and we don't keep the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant between Israel and God, but we do say there's a pattern pre-existing the Mosaic law to get our batteries recharged by taking some time off away from your daily work. But just remember this. I just think, as J. Vernon McGee said, it's better for us to burn out than rust out. In other words, you're going to be tired, 
uh, we don't want to be passive and we don't want to be lazy Christians. We want to be good stewards. We want to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. We don't want to bury our talent, so to speak, in the ground. We want to be working. So I think most Christians, if they're faithful, godly people, are going to be a little more tired than the average non Christian because we got an agenda. It's urgent, it's important. And as Jesus put it, nighttime is coming when no one can work, right? We're going to work at, while it's daytime. So get at it, right? I, I, I want to have that food to eat that other people don't know anything about, and that is he loves to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he can. And, and of course, for me, it's my full-time job to work within church context, other people working in other contexts, but they still are going to leave their work, and they're going to go and do things that they know is going to serve the Lord and, and minister to the body of Christ, and God is going to reward all of that. Our ultimate rest is coming when this life is over. It calls it that in, in Hebrews 4. We're going to get to our rest. Right now, it's time to work, and uh, should you take breaks? Yes. But get used to being tired. And the older I get, the more you know easily I get tired, and I realize that's just how it's going to be in this fallen world in our fallen bodies. So press it, but don't go crazy by not taking breaks. Occasionally you need to take a break, just like Michael Rydelnik had to take a break because his <laughs> right. wife's so smart to say, hey, you need a little time off. And he's exercising that godly principle of taking a pause. Now with that, though, you're not saying everyone should be working 90-hour work weeks. And no. like you're you're talking more ministry and that um, that the you said our soul should thrive on the ministry of the Lord. And I just think yeah. about... Um, Matthew 11, when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like, that there is that that soul rest can also be so yeah. um, life-giving. 100%. If, if you're, I think, I think a lot of it is the busyness, if it's the, the right things, as opposed to being busy for busy's sake. Like, sure. oh, everyone around me is doing these 12 other Christmas things this month. Okay, I guess I'll schedule those too. Like those, <laughs> I, I find myself feeling like I need to say no to some things just because I'm only adding it in because other people are doing it. I feel like I should. Right. Like that's as long as not you know, reason. And here's how I often put it. You just always need to know that we rest so that we can work. We don't work mm. so we can rest. And that's how people function, right? I'm working for the weekend. I would sing it, but, you know, <laughs> I, I won't, right? But there's a lot of things, right? We, we work for the break. We, we're working to get off so that we can rest. Well, God says rest is important, but rest is so that we can get back to work. Even the animals are supposed to rest in the Old Testament every seventh day because they need to get to work on the next day. So we, we, I want to get refreshed. And you need to say no to some parties and some Christmas things so that you can do the work God's called you to do. And you need to do that with some energy that you get when you recharge your batteries by taking some time off. So yeah, we all have to say no to opportunities. But uh, just remember this, when you rest, rest and enjoy that rest and recreation, right? Recreation. Mm -hmm. Because we're recreating the energy we need to get back to doing the good things God asks us to do. And in this world, a lot of work. We're made to work, and we're going to do whatever work God's called us to do, not just at the office, right, or in our jobs, but in our churches, right? We're supposed to be yeah. busy about it, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Well, I wish we always had time, <laughs> uh, Trish, for more of the mail questions. I and I know you lugged in that giant bag into the studio here uh, to get through these. <laughs> but we'll get more on the next broadcast. But for now, we're going to take a break. we got right. more questions coming up. Thanks, Trish, so much. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik on Moody Radio. We're so glad you're listening. And we hope to get back on your phone calls right after this.
In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says Paul has written some things that are hard to understand. That's why Alan Johnson's book, Romans, Everyday Bible Commentary, is so helpful. It provides clear explanations that will enhance our understanding of this important letter, and it offers practical application for our own lives, too. When you give a gift of any size to Open Line, I'll send you a copy of Romans, Everyday Bible Commentary, just to say thank you. Call 888-644-7122 or visit openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabara sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's uh, taken a break and a well-deserved one and a needed one in his case, but I'm here doing my best in the studio trying to make things work, and we have got Roger in Minnesota on the air. You're on Open Line with Mike Fabares. How can I help today, Roger? Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, and I appreciate your ministry. Um, I've been looking at... Uh, Romans eight twenty six and 27, and uh, I'm just wondering, um, you know, when I'm troubled about praying in that, you know, the, it says that the Holy Spirit draws alongside and intercedes for me, and is his groanings um, actually because he's burdened like I am, or are, is, are we supposed to be speaking in tongues, or uh, how does that work? And um, I'm kind of springing this on you. I, I thought of it while I was waiting, but did you have any ideas on a good good books in the Holy Spirit's ministry? Yeah, no, I'm happy to, to talk about that. Well, let's start here in, in the context, which gives us the definition of the word groaning, which is a it's a metaphorical or personification of the kind of feeling you would have, like they had back in the Old Testament. When in Ezekiel, the people were groaning because things were so bad in Israel, and actually the Bible says they were godly people because they groaned, and people who didn't groan, they, they, they weren't burdened for the right things. So in verse 22, it says the whole creation has been groaning with together with the pains of childbirth until now. And the whole point is because we want to see all the things in creation that are wrong in verse 20, we want to see it made right. And that's going to happen in verse 19 of Romans 8, when the sons of God are revealed in their glorif- glorified state, and the world's going to be made right, and all the bondage to corruption is going to be reversed. So creation is groaning, quote unquote. And then it says that the Spirit of God, verse 23, right, is, is within us, causing us to groan, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So the groaning is this repeated word in the context of this passage. And then it speaks about our praying, and it says in the passage you quoted, verse 26, likewise, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, there it is again, too deep for words. This is not about some ecstatic utterance or some weird vocalization coming out of our mouths when we're praying. This is about the Spirit of God that is saying, oh man, you know, you know what, what Roger needs, you know what Mike needs, here's what they need. And, and he's praying, sometimes he's praying even for the wrong things. He wants this thing to work out, and, and in reality, things are bad and they're wrong and they need to be fixed. And so the Spirit goes and intercedes for us according to what the will of God actually is, because he knows, he has the mind of the Father. And, and so we know that the Spirit is engaged in having us move forward in this sin-laden world toward the fulfillment of our responsibility as stewards of God, so we can get to the day of the fulfillment 
of all that God wants, and that is the redemption of our bodies, as it says in that passage, and the redemption of this world and creation and, and the corruption being reversed. So this is all a passage about anticipation. It's about hope. It's about wanting the thing that God has promised and wanting it to come to fruition, and the creation is groaning, and we're groaning, and even the Spirit is groaning as He's going in our behalf before the Father and saying, here's what Mike, here's what Roger needs, and saying, oh, this is hard. And, and, and that's the thing. Like the Old Testament, we, we're crying out, how long, O Lord? We just want this to be fixed. And so that's the, the, the concept here. And if you just read verse 26 out of context, you think, well, groaning, that sounds funny. That sounds weird. I, I guess I've heard someone groan when they break their leg or something. So um, uh, that's kind of noises that are supposed to come out of my mouth. No, the Spirit is groaning as he's giving intelligible requests on our behalf to the Father. And so that's the context of this. And, and the Spirit, of course, knows what we need better than we know. We come to God and we say, uh, you know, if the Lord wills, because we don't know, but the Spirit knows what the Lord wills, and he's there groaning on our behalf. And that means he's anticipating that this we get through this and we do it well, we do it to the glory of God. Does that help, Roger? Yeah, yeah I'm taking things out of context, and by, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on 26 rather than the whole passage. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And the repeating of that phrase is so important. I wrote a book called uh, Lifelines for Tough Times, not a moody publication, but Harvest House Publishers. I got a section there, and a lot of the book is really dealing with Romans 8 and the problems we have in our lives. And I deal with that section of Scripture and the groaning passage uh, with little more detail. So if you want to check that out, you can go online, get that electronically, or you can get it sent to you. Lifelines for Tough Times, and it will definitely deal with a lot of the issues in Romans 8 and tie the context context together and deal with some of the pains we have in our lives and show us that even the Spirit is, is sympathetic in the way that He intercedes for us, and that word groaning certainly depicts that. Roger, thanks for the call. We're so grateful for it. You're listening to Open Line uh, with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, but me sitting in today, Dr. Mike Fabar is answering your questions, and we're going to go back to Karen. If we can squeeze her in in Indiana, you're on the line. We just have just a few seconds left, but how can I help, Karen? Karen, are you there? All right. Yes. Can you hear oh, me? Yes. Yes. Only have a few seconds. Okay. How can we help? All right. Um, question about Jesus. It has to do with fully, um, fully human, human God, um, fully God. Sorry, I'm trying to go too fast. What I want to know is when was he able to perform his miracles? Was it not until he got baptized and the Holy Spirit came down on him? Or since he was fully God, could he do it even as a young child? And therefore, Mary probably witnessed that. Yeah, right. I think the ministry of Christ and the miraculous things that designated to other people that he was the Son of God probably did start with that endowment of the Spirit in a special way. Not that the Spirit wasn't totally involved in Christ's life, but in his humanity, he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit to function his divine attributes. So yes, I think the miraculous signs happened after the baptism of Christ, and that took place on a periodic basis for three and a half years before his crucifixion. That's a short answer, Karen, but we're at the end of the program. Thanks for your patience and waiting on the line. You are listening to Open Line. It's a great program that is run usually by Dr. Michael Rydelnik with the great support of Trish McMillan, and Bob Maru, and Lynn answering your calls. My name is Mike Fabares sitting in today. Uh, Open Line, you can get more information at openlineradio.org. 
because Open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute, and we wish you guys all a very Merry Christmas. Bye-bye.